Welcome to the Open Assembly Podcast. I'm your host, John Windsor. And in this episode, I chat with Mike Morris, CEO of TopCoder. TopCoder is one of the world's leading platforms with a network of 1.5 million designers, developers, data scientists, and testers from around the globe that help TopCoder customers solve real-world problems. TopCoder's list of customers includes T-Mobile, Zurich Insurance, and Wellmark. For some, on-demand talent, crowdsourcing, and the open economy are a new way of doing things. But TopCoder was founded way back in 2001 and essentially paved the way to where we are today. I met Mike a few years ago at an event at the Harvard Business School, and he never ceases to amaze me. In this episode, we dive into a bit of history on TopCoder, where they are today, and where they are headed in the future. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mike Morris, the CEO of TopCoder. All right, we're with Mike Morris, CEO of TopCoder today. And Mike, tell us a little bit about you personally. Sure. So uh, I am from the Boston area, native, still live there. Got four kids. I was a computer science graduate out of Boston College and got right into the software world. And I've been doing crowdsourcing for longer than the term has existed since uh, about 2001. On a personal front, my passions are spending time with the, the family, with the kids and all their sports, and I love to water ski. That's awesome. That's awesome. I know that's one of the things we have in common, right? We've been doing this so long. We get confused on what to even call it because, you know, we're so long in the tooth. It's kind of fun, though, to be doing this so long and seeing how much has changed. It's been a long time coming, but it seems like we've got a lot of momentum right now. I would agree. So tell us about the platform. Tell us about TopCoder. You guys have been on a super long journey, and I'm always blown away by outside impressions, by the culture and the passion of the people playing on the platform and the amount of money people can earn on it. It's just, it's magical to me. Yeah, I mean, it's been, I mean, the ride's been amazing. I'd say if I sum it up, you know, we knocked the supply side of our platform out of the park from the day one. You know, I think we we really got the, mentality of the developer community and you know i always say the power of like a really strong company in our space they have to have the hearts and the minds of the developers and we were able to do that early on so i'm pretty proud of that i'm pretty proud of the team that was able to accomplish that but we've struggled on the demand side like that's been where we've really had a harder time was like how do you convince people of this new way of working this new way of accessing talent this new way of you know, getting things done. And that's been the challenge for us, you know, over the time that we've spent building the model. I think a lot of it was timing. Some of it was, you know, we probably could have done things differently, but I do feel the timing is here now. Yeah, that's great. And I, I totally agree. It's sometimes it just is hard to be too early as it is to be too late. Well, give us some metrics about like the community and what they do and what you guys specialize in and focus on and and things like that. So the community is global. We're in every country. That's about approaching 1.6 million people. And it grows by about 50,000 people per quarter. Mainly it is software developers, data scientists, and designers. So people that design, you know, front end. So all around the, the software space. And one of the key pieces behind our community is we treat it very similar to 
sort of like what Major League Baseball does. You know, we promote them with their statistics and their accomplishments. We make sure that they can see how they perform versus their peers. And we take a lot of time really creating profiles, you know. So inside of our, you know, call 1.6 million people, we're creating celebrities every day for how they accomplish things. A lot of the inspiration for that was sports. Also, the International Chess Federation, I think they do an amazing job of you know, recognizing accomplishments for people that play chess on a global basis, very similar to us. So those really drove us to build the culture of our community, and it's lasted. I mean, it really has. We've got a strong community culture. Yeah. Tell us the founding story. How did you guys get going? What was the insight that started the whole company? A group of us worked together at a consulting company early on, and it was a small, highly technical consulting company, really prided ourselves in building you know, high-end. At that time, it was data warehouses, and the internet was just kind of coming off the ground, so search engines and things like that, e-commerce sites. Our biggest problem was always finding talent. It was like, can we find the talent? You know, where are we going to look for it? And when we did get it, can we hire it? You know, can we do that talent come work with us? And then when they did come on board, how long can we keep them? Can we keep them happy? So we just realized that you know, our business was really controlled around the talent. And at that time, so let's say it was 2001, we also felt that there was a maturity that was happening where we could see a future in software development that was much more made up of bits and pieces. Like, hey, I'm going to take something that's over here and combine it with something open source over here and combine it with something that I built myself over here. So kind of bits and pieces kind of model. And we felt that the internet was the right mechanism to build a platform that could do, one, the finding of the talent, aggregation of the talent, and two, the connecting of those bits and pieces. You know, why can't I find a person in Colorado that knows X, combine them with a person in Boston that knows, you know, Y, and then a person in Singapore that knows Z and build something really, really neat. So that was the idea. That was the general concept about it. We felt that a lot of companies at that time were going down a path of trying to find lower cost labor. And we really thought that was a mistake. We thought that if you want to drive efficiencies in anything, you should go for higher quality, right? So it wasn't about finding a lower cost person to do the work. It was about finding a higher quality, more skilled person to do the work. I think that's super poignant. It's amazing how cost drives so many decisions, yet it's kind of the wrong place to look, right? It's a kind of a false hope. You mentioned earlier, but what categories do you guys work in? What categories does top code work? And I know you guys do a lot of super interesting cutting edge work, but also some more, you know, block and tackle stuff as well. So we do a lot of data science and I'd say it's high end algorithmic data science. So things like computer vision, machine learning, high end optimization problems, like trying to, you know, solve human genome issues, you know, you got to process it faster and more quickly. And then also we do a lot in the space of, you know, I'd say digital, right? So like high-end digital stuff, we built an iPad application for NASA that runs in the International Space Station that the astronauts use. But, you know, really interactive digital things, digital products. We do a lot of QA work. Um, So when you have to test that stuff, we do QA work with the community where people come in and try to basically try to break things to help us make it stronger, more efficient. 
And then, you know, I'd say a lot of our clients, it's really those back office systems that keep them up and running. So we're doing more and more of that. I mean, you'd be amazed at the amount of work that, you know, most companies spend more money on their just everyday operational systems than they do on their innovation systems. So we've been getting pulled more into that space recently, which is kind of interesting. Not always the most glamorous, but the things that really keep the operations of a business running. Awesome. So, you know, you mentioned the NASA stuff, and I know you guys have so many great case studies, but what's one good case study from the platform and tell us the customer success story? Okay. I'll give you one that I, I haven't talked about a lot, and it's the customer of ours is Wellmark. So they're an insurance company, and the CTO at Wellmark, Paul, he is very progressive. He understands our model, but he really looks at it like, hey, this is part of my strategy. I should have a model like Topcoder where I can access any talent anywhere in the globe whenever I need it on demand. I need my internal people you know, that are going to help me do the things, really do the thinking and the work, the in-between work around all my projects. And I need vendors that are going to specialize in certain things that I can use in a more of a traditional model. So he believes in, an, in a model across the board. But his big thought, what he really set out to do is say, but whenever I work with any of them, I should do it in a similar way because then it allows me to be able to really change just like your supply chain. It's like, all right, hey, if there's a slowdown in this area of the globe, I can just go to this area of the globe. And that's the way that he thought about building his internal processes. So we worked with him on that for, geez, it was probably about six months. And we got to the end of it and he started, you know, he started implementing it across. But actually when the pandemic hit, and all of his other sources of capacity were impacted, but we weren't. We were already 100% virtual. So his strategy really worked extremely well, where he's like, all right, well, like I said, the supply chain of these vendors has been impacted, but Topcutter hasn't. So I've been able to put more work into the Topcutter bucket. And a lot of the apps are back-end insurance apps that help run the business. You know, a lot of you know, I wouldn't say uh, not necessarily your sexiest digital applications, but important projects. So that, that's been a great one for us. That's been a great case study. And I love the fact that it was kind of his vision of his own talent strategy that made us shine. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of thinking about talent as an ecosystem, right? And being able to be really fluid. I heard that from Paul the other day on the idea of talent fluidity. Like, how do I move talent from one place to another and make sure that I've got the sources? So, well, speaking of the disruption of the current crisis, like, what are you seeing out there? What are you feeling? What are you seeing? I am seeing there's three categories of our clients. There's one category where they've been disrupted in the fact that they've had to slow things down, right? So think about travel and leisure to mm-hmm. companies. There's been another category where they've actually significantly increased their need for capacity, right? Healthcare, supply chain, you know, even certain manufacturing areas for us and like just they're doubling down, right, on areas. And then you have the one, which is almost everybody else, which is maybe their capacity is roughly the same, but it's changed a lot. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, no, I got to focus on how do I make this the digital process or how do I increase, you know, our whole telecom sector, right? How do I increase capacity reliably? How do I make sure that my customer service is, you know, really high for my people that are working at home that are relying on me? They've had to figure out how to, hey, we got to put these 50 things on hold 
and start working on these 60 things over here. So the thing that all of them have in common is that they've all realized that they've been forced to change, number one. And number two, there's, they're going to be forced to change back at some point in time. And number three, oh, what if this happens again? So everybody is in the mindset now of like, I need to be able to be more resilient going forward. I need to be able to be able to change on a dime. So the whole concept of on-demand, I think is finally, for the first time, really starting to hit enterprises. Enterprises didn't really think that transactional or that, you know, it's like, hey, I may need to change. These 30 people may need to have different skill sets in two months, right? And how am I going to plan for that? And I don't even know what those skill sets are yet. So how am I going to plan for that? So I think people are really realizing they're going to need a more resilient model going forward. And the ones that, you know, do it right, you know, the ones that really implement it, it will pay off. It will pay off for them. Yeah, no, I, I think that's what we're here in all over the place, right? This idea of how do I create more resiliency in our organization and more redundancy so we have backup plans and turn things on and turn things off. So who would you say your core customers are? When you look inside organizations, are they CTOs of small companies, of big companies? Are they the procurement or HR? Like, where do you engage? Yeah, so traditionally for us, it's been the CTO organization within a company. So R&D, CTO. However, we've been seeing definitely more buyers come out of CIO. So, you know, that's definitely been a bigger, I'd say the last three years, we've seen more CIO organizations adopting models like this. And I tend to think the reason why the CTOs and the R&D organizations were first was because they were in such a significant pressure to get stuff done. They were really searching for ways to solve their talent issues, their capacity issues, in you know, almost the tip of the spear. And now it's becoming more mainstream. You know, three years ago, I was never involved in discussions with HR. Now HR is part of the you know, CIO and HR are now becoming brought to the table. They're not necessarily the buyers, but they're involved, right? This is part of them having to you know, understand how this part of the talent strategy is going to work. Right, right. So yeah, so I'd say traditionally, the people that have been the innovators in this space have been the CTOs and the R&D organizations, but now it's starting to move more mainstream. Interesting. Well, you mentioned earlier, one of your biggest challenges is the demand side. What are you guys doing to address that? I mean, it seems like you guys are doing some super innovative things to think about, not just your traditional contest model, because it feels like the contest model is one that has you know, seen significant success, but it also, it's so fantastic that it really creates you know, issues inside organizations with identity and fear and all those things, whereas kind of more traditional freelance models aren't as scary, right? It's kind of fitting into the organization the way that it was kind of built. I mean, tell me how you're overcoming some of the demand side challenges with changing your model, broadening your model, doing new things. So that's a great question. I love how you teed that up. In a certain way, we've, we've kind of had to make our model a little less exotic, right? Almost make it a little bit more boring, really. You know, I say that not in a bad way, but it's like when you look at the core model of Top Coder and the use of challenges and contests, I would classify that as the complete uberization of the technology stack, right? Like I can get whatever piece I want when I want it at the quality that I want it, right? But the reality is, is that people aren't ready for that. Now think about, you know, how we were the first time that our kids or our wife said that they're going to try this thing called Uber. You know, we're like, no, you're not. 
there's no way you're getting in a car of somebody that I don't know and you don't know and you found them on your, your cell phone. Like there's no way. And eventually, you know, we got the experience and we were able to realize the, the convenience of it and it's, it became mainstream. We've got that same kind of issue going on, but with big, large enterprises that take longer to move and change. So we've created a model called Town as a Service. It's providing them an experience that is similar to what they would be used to, but still leverages the secret sauce that we have in the challenge model. So what it does is basically we will curate the talent on our supply side using challenges and we'll create those profiles. We'll understand who they are, what they're good at, what their skill sets are. And then we can match them to organizations that are looking for that type of skill set in a way that they can make a relationship with those people. So it's not just, hey, let me get this outcome from the top credit platform. It's, hey, I'm going to work with Sergey again. And I you know, really like the way that he did this. And I want to be able to get him on a Slack forum and talk to him and get on a Hangout or a Zoom call. So Talent as a Service takes the curation from our challenges and allows us to create almost fantasy teams for people where they can create their pools of project teams from our community. It's all remote, but it is closer to the style that somebody would be used to in a traditional outsourcing or freelancing model. Yeah, I love that because I think that's part of the adoption process, right? You have to do things that are close enough inside the way that you do things now to start on an adoption journey that just don't blow everything up, that don't threaten you personally, that don't threaten your processes. You're not going to get fired because it went bad. Just like the old saying, right? You're not going to get fired for buying something from IBM. So what else? What else is on the platform roadmap? So we're spending a good amount of time thinking through the security issue. To kind of put it simply, I want to be able to make people comfortable that we know more about the person on the other end of an Ethernet cable than they would of a person sitting out in a cube outside of their desk, right? That's kind of the model that I want to be able to accomplish. And I think we have the technology to do it. There's a lot that goes into it. You know, the world of security is changing a lot. We're soon to be, there'll be no passwords. The way that we can recognize somebody will be some combination of biometric, geolocation, and behavioral, with behavioral being the most advanced and most accurate. So there's a lot that we can do to understand who the people are on the other side of that Ethernet cable. And although it's not an issue for us, we've never had like a a breach or anything like that, or even a bad actor, we've always been able to maintain that integrity. I think it's an issue on the demand side where it's still something where it's like, but what if? So, you know, we're just going to make it an asset for us instead of having it be a concern for the companies that are buying our services. Yeah, I really love that because I think if you look at it, I think you were on the call earlier when we talked about this. The number one reason for existence for corporate bureaucracies is to protect the core, right? To protect the way the business has been done. And so anything that threatens that, the bureaucratic team is going to try to mitigate that risk. And certainly all the security issues are one thing. I think that's an awesome effort. There is actually, there's one more thing that I would say equally important is, so that's really on more of the customer side. On the talent side, we do need to come together to solve some of these health and wealth issues. Right. So like as this is becoming more of an alternative for traditional work for people, more mainstream, we've got to figure out how to make sure that people have the right amount of 
financial protections in place, whether it be insurance, retirement, things like that, those, those types of benefits. It's not a trivial problem. I think it has to get solved, you know, so it's going to take some time. It's going to take the platform companies to, to solve it, in my opinion. So we want to be part of that solution. You know, ours being so global is actually even more complicated, but sure. it's causing us to really think disruptively. It's not just, hey, can you solve it in the U.S. and the U.K., right? Yeah, I think one of the beauties of, of having such a global imprint is you can also see and have exposure to lots of different systems and how things work. And so back to that book we talked about earlier, Range, the Triumph of Generalists over Specialists, you guys in this space, as you think about it in the context of your community, you're really generalists, right? You, you have somebody from everybody in the world, somebody from everywhere in the world. And that's an important insight to understand, compare and contrast differences in the ways that they can get the kind of benefits and support they need to create the life they want to create. So great stuff. So just as a last question, what would you say to a leader struggling with even getting started in the adoption of platforms like yours? You know, in order for something like this to take hold, it has to be a top-down supported initiative, but it grows through bottom-up success. So I would say if I were put in the shoes of the leader, I would look for who's an up and coming leader in my organization that I want to, you know, give them a path to really impacting the business. And that's going to be somebody that's going to be willing to take risks and it's going to be willing to do things differently and isn't afraid to break a couple of eggs along the way and enable them. It's a key thing. You know, you can't do it just with the bottoms up because it has so many implications, right? It has HR implications. It has sourcing implications, procurement implications, but it really has to be driven from continued success. So you need both of the angles. So that's what I would say. There's no shortage of activity in this space. So if you're not already thinking of it, you're pretty far behind. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I'm always blown away. You know, as you talk, it reminds me, I was on the phone yesterday with Mike Tushman. He's doing a lot more work and it seems like getting a lot more attention around his theories that have been around a long time for about organizational ambidexterity the ability to exploit your current model, explore the new model. And, and as I was talking to him yesterday, you know, this crisis that we're in, the COVID crisis, has really brought that to fore, right? Like how do companies continue to operate to do that, what they've done, but also explore new ways to really reinvent that. And certainly, I think this whole talent discussion that we've had today ladders up into a bigger kind of digital transformation or even business model transformation of how companies need to rethink everything that they do. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for being with me. And I hope the listeners find this relevant and important and really enjoy it. And I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. All right, John. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks.